0: Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for the Holy Scriptures, which make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ our Saviour. Grant us so to receive your word, that as your servants we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. At some point late in Paul's ministry, He briefly visited the Isle of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea, and there, working with Titus, he preached the gospel. Souls were converted, lives were changed, churches were started, and the kingdom of God grew. But Paul couldn't stay long on the island. He needed to move on to preach the gospel and visit other churches that he had planted. And he did this before the church in Crete was strong and well-established. So his plan was to leave Titus to finish the task. And the task, we're told in verse 5, was to put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. The need for this was urgent because the church was being misled by false teachers. In verse 10, Paul describes these false teachers as rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception. And those he singles out, he calls the circumcision group. The circumcision group were clearly Jews. So-called because they were probably teaching that circumcision was prerequisite to becoming a Christian. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, by all means, they would have said, but to be truly acceptable to God, you need to be circumcised. That is, the work of Christ... Well, it's not enough, there's more. But we can't do that. We can't add anything to the Gospel. For the Gospel of grace, received through faith, plus anything at all, is no Gospel at all. If Christ alone is insufficient to save us from our sins, then nothing else will. Adding to the Gospel only ever subtracts from the Gospel. Now this circumcision group were clearly Jews, but it's also pretty clear that they weren't very orthodox at that. Verse 14 tells us that they were peddlers, not only of circumcision, but also Jewish myths. Theirs was a hybrid teaching, a mixture of early Gnosticism, Christianity and Judaism. and They promised all sorts of higher philosophical insights. These were dangerous men who needed to be silenced. As Paul says in verse 11, they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Nonetheless, they were well received and well respected by many in the church. So much so that they were being paid as ministry leaders and teachers. What's clear is that these false teachers, well, they're not simply well-meaning but mistaken. They are, in fact, as a former Cretan prophet, and now Paul describes them in verse 12. They're liars, they're evil brutes, and they're lazy gluttons. As Paul says in verse 15, their minds are corrupted. They still think that purity depends on on ceremonial ritual and washings and laws about what you can and you can't eat. And because their minds are corrupted, so too are their consciences. They'd lost the ability to make correct moral judgments. They were unable to make true distinctions between good and evil. They had failed the test of character. But they also failed the test of conduct. Have a look at verse 16. They publicly confess confess that they knew God, that they were fully informed about God and were in intimate relationship with God. But despite their claims, their actions were evil, for by their actions they denied God. They were detestable because of their hypocrisy. They were disobedient to the moral law and they were unfit for doing anything good. And yet these were the leaders in the church. These were the men who simply filled the vacuum when Paul left. These were the ministers that the church was paying to teach and to preach. Is it any wonder that Paul can say to Titus, you need to put things in order, you need to appoint elders? And unlike the false teachers... The elders were to be godly men. By their conduct, they were to lead by example. Have a look from verse 6. An elder is to be blameless. Now that doesn't mean he's perfect, but it does mean that his reputation in the church and the community needs to be irreproachable. What that looks like in practice, Paul describes in the verses that follow. It means that married elders are to be faithful husbands, loving fathers and men who manage their families with courage and strength and godliness. Verse seven, they're not to be overbearing, arrogantly disregarding the interests of others in order to please themselves. They're not to be quick tempered, readily yielding to anger. They're not to be drunkards or violent they're not to use their office to pursue dishonest gain. More positively, they are to be hospitable. Literally, to be hospitable is to be a lover of strangers, welcomers of the poor, the widows, the orphans and the aliens in their midst. Verse 8. Elders are to love what is good and be self-controlled. An uncommon virtue in Crete, it would seem. Towards the world, appointed elders were to conduct themselves uprightly, according to the standards of the Gospel. Towards God, they are to be holy. Towards themselves, they are to be disciplined, in control of their bodily appetites and their passions. The final characteristic of elders is in verse 9. And it says that leaders in the church should be doctrinally fit. That is, they should be holding firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. And the trustworthy message is the apostolic message of the cross. And that's a message that can't be improved upon. It can't be added to and nor can it be adjusted in any way. To be unfaithful to that message should disqualify anyone from leadership in God's Church. And if leaders in the Church are doctrinally sound, then their ministry will be an encouragement to the faithful and a refutation of false teaching. Now It's easy to see how sound doctrine might refute error but it's not so obvious that sound doctrine can be an encouragement. For often doctrine is regarded as merely an academic pursuit, something like systematic theology. Interesting to some perhaps, but unrelated to the daily grind of life. But it shouldn't be so. Having correct doctrine may sound technical and academic, but in reality it's the truth of the trustworthy message that brings life and peace and joy. And that's not going to happen if we get the message wrong. If we think that the gospel message is, do your best, perform your religious duties, and hope that you've done enough to please God, well, that's not going to bring us life and peace and joy that's not a message of life, that's a message of death. Because it makes the gospel to be about us. And it's not a message of peace, but of turmoil. Because it makes the gospel to be a performance in which we're the stars who can never quite shine bright enough. And it's not a message of joy, but of despair. Because it makes the gospel to be a message about standing tall to reach God and not recognising that he's already stooped low to reach us. When we get the gospel wrong, it will very likely build us up with pride and just as likely it will crush us with anguish and doubt. What a false gospel can never do is change our lives. A false message of hope will never transform us into the image of Christ with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Having sound doctrine, therefore, is really, really important. It not only encourages and brings life, it also protects by refuting error. Sound doctrine exposes false teachers and counterfeits. Did you know that in banks, that they don't train their staff to recognise counterfeit notes by simply studying the fakes? The fakes become most immediately obvious when the bank tellers are most familiar with the real notes and coins. I guess in the same way, the best way to recognise false teaching is to be really familiar with sound doctrine. When we know God's word well, we'll recognise false teaching when we hear it. So important is sound doctrine to the life and health of the church uh, that Paul lays down a foundational theology right at the beginning of his letter to Titus. So when he describes himself in verse 1, He says that he's a servant of God and an Apostle of Jesus Christ. As a servant, he works under the authority of God. As an Apostle, he teaches with the authority of God and Jesus Christ. And because apostolic authority is given by God and Christ Jesus, then we recognise the apostolic writings of the New Testament as the written Word of God. The trustworthy message that Elders hold on to firmly is the message of the Apostles and the Prophets, the message of the New and the Old Testaments, the message of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That's our written authority that that's the standard by which we judge all teaching. That's the standard by which we judge all other authority. So if I, or any other teacher of the Bible, preach or teach to you as doctrine what's contrary to the Bible, or in addition to the Bible, then it's important that such teaching be challenged, and if necessary, refuted. And the reason that Paul's been sent by God and the Lord Jesus Christ to preach the trustworthy message is, as he says in verse 1, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth. And that's the appropriate response to the gospel. That is both faith and understanding. Faith is the attitude of the heart that says, I fully trust Jesus and Him alone. And understood correctly, saving faith is that which moves from our head to our heart and lips and then to our hands and feet. For the knowledge of the truth that Paul speaks of is that which leads to godliness. And knowledge like that, well, it's not merely intellectual. It actually affects how we live our lives. And there are a lot of scholars and academics today who know the Bible quite well, yet they live their lives not believing a word of it. They live their lives not under the authority of God and His word, but as judges over God's word. When we put ourselves over God's word, it may make us seem scholarly and important, But it will never make us godly. For it is real faith and true knowledge that leads to godliness. Have a look at verse 2. Faith and knowledge that leads to godliness is a life of trust and obedience in the present based on the hope of eternal life in the future. That's the thing about hope. When we use the word hope, we are talking about the future but we nearly always carry with it a hint of uncertainty. We hope it will rain soon, but we can't be sure. We may hope that the Blues will beat Queensland, but that happens so rarely we're even less sure of that. It's true. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it too refers to something in the future. But more than that, Hope in the Bible is always something that's absolutely sure and in no way uncertain. So when Paul speaks of the hope of eternal life in verse 2, he describes it as something which God has promised. And because God doesn't lie, well the hope of the gospel, it's not a possibility, it's not even a probability. Our hope of eternal life is a certainty and it's absolutely certain because it's guaranteed by God. And the promises of God are grounded in his eternal purposes, as Paul says, before the beginning of time. And at just the right time, in a season appointed by him, Paul says in verse 3, God brought his word to light through the preaching of the trustworthy message of the gospel. And it was a message entrusted to Paul by the command of God, our Saviour. The message of the gospel, well, it's so important to the existence and life of the church that Paul proclaims it firmly and clearly. And he does so before he attempts to deal with any of the problems in Crete. Getting the gospel wrong is a sure recipe for getting everything else wrong. Paul is not asking that bad men be replaced with good men. He wants error to be replaced with truth. He wants the circumcision group corrected so that they'll be sound in the faith. He wants faithful elders appointed who hold firmly the trustworthy message so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine. My friends, we have godly and capable elders in our diocese. We have a bishop who holds firmly to the trustworthy message of the gospel. We have trained clergy approved by the bishop, appointed by the parishes, We have wardens and parish councillors, And though their official roles are largely administrative, those who front up to meet and to pray and to serve, they're the spiritual leaders in our church. They're God's appointed elders, entrusted with the gospel and called to hold it firmly as it has been taught. Friends, pray for... Our church leaders pray for one another, but pray especially for yourself and ask God not to make you a leader but a servant, not to make you happy but to make you holy, not to make you good but to make you godly. Ask God to give you faith and knowledge that rests on the hope of eternal life, and finally, ask God to make you a servant of the gospel, faithfully living and proclaiming its trustworthy message as you have been taught. Do this, and we shall grow in our faith, and God's church in Israel shall be built up to the full measure of the stature of Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, that you have called us to be your servants and disciples. Thank you that you've given to us faith to trust you, knowledge that leads to godliness, and the hope of eternal life grounded in your eternal purposes in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to love you more and more by trusting you for every circumstance in our life help us to know you more and more by reading your word and obeying your will. Give to us a clear understanding of the gospel so that we might resist the temptation to ritual and dead works. Encourage us and challenge us with your word of truth so that having received Christ Jesus as Lord, we might continue to live our lives in him, rooted and built up in him, Strengthen in the faith as we have been taught, and overflowing with thankfulness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.